Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can grab it and open up to John chapter 1. If you do not have um, a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you, maybe, I hope, still uh, today. You can grab that, and that's our gift to you. You can write in that, mark it up, keep that with you. Um, while you're turning there, I just want to give you an update on the Together Initiative. Last week, we introduced this, um, uh, but not for the first time. We just introduced it with the title, The Together Initiative. But this goes back to a lot of conversation that our whole church family has been having around the future of our church. And so there's kind of two parts to it. The first part is we voted with 99% approval as a church family to enter into this initiative to expand the physical building here at New Hope to create some room that this service is feeling. Um, And there's people sitting in overflow right now. And so you kind of get like, hey, there's like the need for some, a little bit of breathing room here in the physical building. But the second part of that is also to plant a church. Um, and so we, we want to begin planting independent Christian churches. And so we brought this to the church family. Um, here at New Hope, we're an elder-led church. So our elders brought this vision to the church family for vote. And they voted with 99% approval to move on. Well, the Together Initiative is the logical next step to that. It's us gauging the church family and saying, hey, what, what are we as individual families, a part of a bigger church family together, ready to contribute, ready to commit over the next two years to this initiative. And so I I wanted to go over the card with you just for clarity. Uh, You can grab one of the booklets out at the table in the lobby, and I personally want to encourage you to grab the prayer guide with it as well. It'll just guide you through praying together as a family as you kind of think through and seek wisdom and discernment about what you're going to commit to. This will walk you through a little bit of it. There's a page on here that can be torn off, and this is the commitment card. And I want to explain a couple things about that card just for clarity. First, you'll notice on there, there is a spot for your name. That was by request from some people in the church that wanted to be able to put their name on it. But for the most part, no one's putting their names on them. Uh, We think that a lot of the cards are going to come in anonymous, and that's perfectly okay. We're not trying to track your giving uh, to the initiative. We're trying to get, as a whole family, what are we able to commit to. So you can put your name on there if you desire. You don't have to if you don't want to. The other thing is that top line or the other lines as well. What the card is asking for is the amount of the commitment over the next two years to the Together Initiative. So my family will have a conversation this coming week. Here's our tithes. Here's what we tithe to New Hope on a regular basis. What above that tithe over the next two years is our family going to commit to this initiative? That number of the two-year commitment is the number, not the added together. Just the amount that we're going to commit to the initiative is what we'll write on that card. We come next Sunday, we'll fold the card up, and we'll put it in one of the offering boxes around. You're not going to come in here and have music and this moment in the service where we all bring our cards up. None of that. It's just, hey, as a church family, we decided to do this together. Here's what we're doing. You turn them into one of the boxes around the building. We'll gather up the information over the next two Sundays. So next Sunday, the 22nd and the 29th, we will collect these commitment cards. Last thing, if you have questions, you're like, hey, I need a little more clarity on this, or you have feedback to offer us so that we can learn about what we're doing, because we're not experts on all of this, man, we would love to talk to you. And so just catch one of us. You can email us. Um, all emails of frustration go to matt at newhopecc.net. Here he is. Yeah. Go Cowboys. All right. So, uh, but honestly, you can just reach out to one of us, and we would love to answer questions, receive some feedback about the whole process. 
Um, we're in it together. That's why we titled it the Together Initiative, and we really mean that. Um, so let me pray for us, and we'll jump in to John chapter 1. Father, thank you uh, so much for this church family and all that it is. Man, I was reminded vividly this week of just how special this place is. God, this place has shaped and molded my entire life. My family tree has changed because of the work you've done through the people of this church, and you receive, deserve all that glory, God. But Father, we don't want to hoard it. We want to share it. And so we're entering into this time where we want to expand here because we really, truly believe you're leading us in that direction, and we want to get ready to create other outposts of heaven all around our area. And so, God, we ask that you would go before us and continue to lead us. And this morning, Father, as we turn our attention and our affection to your word, would you change us, shape us, mold us into who you need us to become so that we are equipped and prepared to do what you've called us to do. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, uh, that's the best way to start a sermon, right? Bear with me. Once upon a time, there was a king, and this king was the wealthiest of all kings, had more land and authority and power than any other king. And this king uh, was a good king. He cared about his people. Anything he wanted, he could have. Any resource he wanted to have as a part of his life, he had access to it. Well, one day, as a part of his kingdom, there was a gardener. And this gardener in the kingdom took care of a very small plot of land, and it was what provided for his family. Didn't generate a lot of income, but he was a hardworking good man. And so one day he's pulling his crop. He pulls out a carrot. It's the biggest carrot he's ever seen in his life. Not just the biggest carrot that he's produced in his little plot of land, but I mean, he's never even seen anything like this before. And the first thought that goes through this gardener's mind is, I want to give this to the king as an offering because he's such a good king. And so he makes his way, goes through the procedures, gets into the presence of the king and says, king, you're an incredible king. I'm a gardener. I'm just a simple person. When I pulled this carrot out, it's the greatest thing. It would provide for my family for a long time, but you've been so good to us. I want to offer this carrot to you. Well, the king receives the gift, is moved by the gift, and the gardener begins to leave. When the king gets his attention, says, oh, don't, don't leave yet. Don't leave. Hold on. Come here. He gets the gardener and he says to him, look, I, I've got a lot of power and authority, and I've tried to be good with it. This gift means so much to me that I'm going to gift you this entire section of land for you to oversee and care over. You're going to be able to garden like you've never gardened before. You're going to provide for your family and many other families for generations to come because you've been so good. Go and enjoy your gift. Well, sitting in the kingdom that day, in the castle, in the palace, was a nobleman who had overheard him talking to this gardener, and he thought to himself, are you serious? For a carrot? Like, Oh man, if I give him something even better than that, imagine what I could get if I give him a better gift than just a measly carrot. So he says, I'm coming back in a few days and I'm going to give this king the best gift he's ever had. And so he waits a few days and goes through the procedure and comes before the king in the palace. And he says, king, you've been so good to your people. He kind of rehearses the same line as the gardener, which kind of tips the king off. He says, king, I brought you this incredible stallion. I take care of horses and this black stallion is the greatest horse I've ever seen. He's the most beautiful horse I've ever taken care of, and I want to offer this horse to you as a gift. And the king says, thanks a lot. You can leave now. Takes the horse, and the guy is just like, what? Are you serious? The gardener, he got all this. I'm not getting anything. But he didn't say anything because that would have cost him his life. But he looked completely confused, and so the king sees the look on his face and says, hey, hold on. Before you leave, let me explain something to you. When you eavesdropped the other day and you heard me gifting 
the gardener for the carrot. The gardener was offering me the carrot. You were offering yourself the horse. You can lead. I love that story. It's been attributed to a lot of people over time. I really don't know the original source. But each time I read it, each time I hear it, it reminds me of this struggle that we've all been in in our lives. It's a battle that I've had a lot of hard battles with. It's also one that you have as well. It's something we can relate to. This, this issue that we've all struggled with has created more relational friction in our lives than any other issue that we have wrestled with or battled in our lives. It's created turmoil in marriages and with families and children around money and coworkers and employees and employers. It has created and wreaked havoc on so many different people. And here's the thing about this issue. It's really, really easy to see this problem in other people. And it's really easy to identify the pain that you get when you're on the receiving end of somebody losing the battle to this issue. And it's unbelievably difficult to see it in yourself. Or to recognize when you've not just been the one receiving it, but giving the, the product of this issue to other people. The problem that I'm identifying here is selfishness, self-centeredness. This idea that you need to take care of yourself, your needs, your dreams, your interests, over and above the interests and needs of other people. Right? We're all a little bit self-centered. We all battle it. It sometimes feels, if we're being really honest, as though being self-centered almost comes just so naturally to us to look out for what I need more than what other people need. As a matter of fact, you can't really say, well, I'm sitting here, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. I'm not really that self-centered because to say to yourself, or if you <laughs> would dare to say out loud, I'm not self-centered, is in and of itself just a little bit self-centered, isn't it? It's a battle. It's a struggle. And we all struggle with this battle. and We all battle it. We're all a little bit self-centered. Let me test you this way, why it comes natural to us. When you look at a group photo, who's the first person you look for? <laughs> Let it sink in. It's you. Like, I look for me. I want to know, what was I wearing? What season of life was that? Did I look good? Can I post this? Should I not post this? Right? You're looking at the group picture. My wife and I found our college yearbooks this past week. This is what made me think of this. And we bust out these college yearbooks. We flip through them, and we're showing the kids, and I'm like, immediately... First thing is, where am I? I want to find a picture of me because I was in a better season physically. I felt strong, and they need to know their dad was strong, all right? And so I want to find a picture that says that I was strong. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be real transparent with you. This is a safe place, and we're a church family, right? I looked for myself before I even looked for Sarah in that yearbook. <laughs> I went to the index of the yearbook and counted how many times I showed up in that yearbook, Okay. Like You're like, wow, you are self-centered. And so are you for saying that, okay? <laughs> we are all self-centered, and we all battle this issue with being self-centered. And if, if it wasn't enough, like you, you, you watch the ripple effect of pain that self-centeredness has caused you in your life. The tension in your marriage. The anger that you feel and experience with your children. The rejection that you have gone through when people just don't want to be around the self-centered person. The guilt you feel when you over-talk about yourself and brag about yourself and point it, things out about yourself. These, these things, and like if, it, if it wasn't enough for it to impact those relationships, it also impacts the way you see yourself, the way you treat yourself, the what you think about yourself. It has a negative impact on all of that. And over and above it all, it impacts the way you relate to, understand, and see yourself in the eyes of God. And if that wasn't enough for us to have this internal wrestling match consistently with our self-centeredness, we live in a culture 
that takes care of not just the internal battle, but it surrounds us externally with all the ammunition we need to feed the beast of self-centeredness all around us. Everywhere you turn, you are encouraged to pursue your dreams, your desires, what you want for life, share your opinion, voice your thoughts. And the moment that anybody or anything comes along and disagrees with your conclusions, they are instantly your enemy and you are instantly a victim of their self-centeredness. And the cycle continues, and it continues. We can make an enemy out of anybody who makes us question our own self-centeredness. It's really difficult. You know the thing, we can't go into all the details about self-centeredness today, but what I can tell you is that self-centeredness, one of the things it does, one of the roadblocks that it creates that's more powerful than anything else that we experience in our lives is our ability in any kind of a sincere way to meet the needs of and serve other people. Because even in our service and care for other people, when we are self-centered, we are doing it for our own benefit. It is really difficult to consider the needs of other people when you are completely obsessed with your own. Um, one author put it this way, Richard Winter, he said it this way, we are called not only to enjoy the world of God's creation, but also to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Throughout the Bible, we find a strong emphasis on serving others. One of the reasons why boredom has become such, so much more common is because we have become too preoccupied with looking after ourselves, making sure our needs are met. And to put it bluntly, we've become too selfish. We are, did you catch that? Preoccupied with ourselves. Me, me, me. I, I, I. My needs. My dreams. My past. My future. My experiences. My finances. My family. My marriage. My work. It's all about us. And I don't know if you'd agree with me, but my observation is, from my own experience and what I've seen even as a pastor and just as a friend to people, it's not working. Like, it doesn't work. It doesn't lead to a fulfilled life. Checking off all the boxes of all of your desires doesn't leave you fulfilled. Only worrying about yourself, only talking about yourself, only being like, concerned about what you need in this moment hasn't led many people to be truly happy and filled with joy. It's not working. We are surrounded by a world that tells us to continue. If it hasn't satisfied, find the next thing. Go after the next thing. Pursue the next thing. It's all about you. You can do it. Be your best self. Live your best life now. You, you, you. And we continue to go after it. And we're continued feeling lonely and empty. We are the most technologically connected generation in the history of the planet. And we're lonely and bored. And he says our boredom comes from our obsession with ourselves. And there's a better way to live. There's a better way to do that. There's a better way to, to pursue living a life that would actually lead to fulfillment. And the scriptures are full of these examples, consistently pointing us to people that are emptying their lives for the benefit of other people, teaching us how to do it. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, imitate me, like do what I do as I'm trying to become like Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And there's all these examples throughout the Bible. And we're gonna learn from one today about what it really looks like to live a selfless life, not a selfish life but a life that empties itself on behalf of other people and a person that we call John the Baptist. Before we get there, though, let me remind you just about John the Apostle's gospel. It's a little bit different than the other gospels. We call the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. That's what they're called. They're written different. They read different. The synoptic gospels are kind of action-packed. They have all kinds of examples from the life of Jesus. You're reading all of these different stories and interactions he has. You're, you're watching this all play out as this action-packed narrative. 
And then you get to John and you're like, there's not as much here. As a matter of fact, John tells you at the end of his gospel, I was really selective with what I included. And when you really break it down, you're like, there's like a hand, it's like 12 or 13 stories from the life of Jesus that John includes in his gospel. And you're like, why? Well, John's doing something. He's doing this on purpose. He was selective, meaning what he included, he included on purpose. He wants you to return to his gospel over and over again, reading it and rereading it, learning from these interactions. You'll notice there is an an action that'll take place in his gospel and then a long dialogue. You're like, wait, there's like three pages here for this woman at this well. Like, it's a long, he doesn't talk to anybody else this long in one of the other gospels. He's dialoguing so much. It's because there's so much depth and beauty to it. It's like a diamond. And the more you turn it, like with all of scripture, you'll see, man, I didn't see that. I've read this, you know, 50 times. I've read this 700 times. I've not ever noticed that. It's incredible. Think about it like a piece of art. This is a picture that hangs in my office. It's a painting that was done by um, a friend of mine who was a member of this church. Uh, Her name is Serena Sheriff. Many of you, if you've been here for a long time, you know Duncan and Serena Sheriff. They were longtime members here before they moved to Australia, as far away from this place as they could get, I guess. Uh, Shows you what they really thought of us. I'm kidding. Uh, Serena was an artist, and uh, around the time that she painted this picture, I was finishing my grad work. And a big focus of my grad work was the writing of John, and particularly in the book of Revelation. And my capstone uh, project for my my degree was around chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 1 through 7, the city of Ephesus. And so when teaching through it, she painted these pictures, the seven churches in Revelation. And she, uh, when they moved to Australia, she gifted me this picture, which meant just a lot to me. Uh, And and it's hung in my office for eight, nine-something years. And so I come into it, and I look at this picture all the time, and I see it. And if you're a fan of art, you understand that really good art, you don't just look at it once and appreciate it. You come back to it, and you notice different things, like the strokes that she used to paint the picture, the colors that she chose, the design that she chose. In Revelation chapter 2, it talks about the tree of life. In chapter 7, it says, To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, she captured the tree of life in this picture, and all these people desiring it. Well, for the longest time, I looked at it and just so appreciated this picture. Well, we were preaching through Ephesians last year. And one day in the fall, I'd been reading through Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And I walked into my office as I was thinking through this, and a word popped out that I had never seen in this picture. You're like, where's the word? It's not actually a word. But the word in the text was overcome, to the one who overcomes. And for the first time in nine years, I saw the mountain. And all of a sudden, I was like, what? That picture is so brilliant. To the one who overcomes. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life in the garden. And I thought, man, I had never seen that. That's so beautiful. This is what John's trying to do with his gospel. Whether you've read it for the first time or the 551st time, he wants you to see something. It comes alive. It's active and living. And what you didn't see before, you see now. And because of your personal experiences, your understanding of God's word, you'll pick up on themes like water. Like I noticed that he said water here, but then he says water other places, light and darkness. All these things that John and his brilliance included, but yet there's only a handful of stories because this text will continue to come to life. One of the things that I was challenged by this past week in studying was the life of John the Baptist and how little John includes. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word as we learn from John the Baptist. Beginning in verse 1, we started this last week and we'll hone in on 6 through 13 here in a little bit. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. If you're familiar with the Gospels, with the New Testament, these stories of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would notice right away as you're reading through this passage how little detail were given about John the Baptist. John the Apostle talks about the baptizer very briefly, where in the other Gospels, you're told all kinds of details when you first meet John. You're told about his upbringing. You're told about his mom. You're told about his diet. You're told about his clothing. You're told about where he was and what he was doing. And yet, when you get to John, you're like, hey, and there was a guy named John who testified to the light, and uh, let's talk about the light. And it's like, whoa, why is that? I I think it's on purpose. I think John's doing that on purpose. John's agenda, beginning in verse 1, is to display the Christological nature of Jesus. He is the Christ. He is God. He's divine. So right off the bat, in the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. He was there in the beginning. Here's his point. He is God. Jesus is God. And he's got this giant spotlight on the divine nature of Jesus, Jesus being the Christ. And then he comes in and says, and there was this guy, John. He doesn't even share it's his cousin. He just says, and there was a man named John. And John's goal was to testify to that truth, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one we've been waiting for. That was the purpose of his life, just to point to Jesus and to get out of the way. This is why John knew this too. Look at verse 8. It says, he himself was not the light, meaning he knew, I'm not him. I'm not the light. This isn't about me, in other words. My life is not my own. My life is not about me. He says, he just came as a witness to the light, meaning I know the light. I've been in the light. I'm no longer in darkness. And my goal is to make sure that you're no longer in darkness either. The light's coming, and I want to help you get ready to receive that light. And see, he knew that about himself, but the people around him didn't. So if you keep reading there in, verse, in chapter 1, you get down to verse 19, and the religious authorities of the day, they come and they want to ask him questions about him. They're like, hey, man, we're seeing some of the things that you're doing and what you're teaching. We don't like it. We don't like you, and we want to know who you are. And so who are you? Are you Elijah? He's like, no, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Are you the one? He's like, no, no, I'm not the one. Well, then who are you? Like, who is it that you are? And he says, I'll tell you who I am. And he explains it this way in verse 23. He says, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And they're like, thanks for the straight up answer. Like, what? Like, I'm the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Like, what is he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. In those days, back in the in, in ancient world, you didn't have really paved roads, like good road, you had good road systems, but the roads themselves weren't great. They were thin, uh, they weren't wide, broad roads, and they were kind of uh, like dirt roads, and everybody walked on them. You didn't have sidewalks. And so wherever anybody was going, most people walked. And so they would walk on these roads over time. 
But it wasn't just the people. The animals would walk on these roads, so they were dirty and filthy, right? Animals would travel on the roads as well. And then you'd have wheels, wagon wheels, and different equipment being pulled on these roads as well. So over time, these dirt roads developed these ruts, these holes. They had trash on them. They weren't treated that good. They connected town to town and city to city, but they weren't the greatest of roads. And you're like, yeah, not much has changed in Indianapolis. Have you been like, are you kidding me? The potholes, the trash, like, yes, we can relate to them, right? If you wanted to travel on a nice road, a, a paved road or a road that was wider and smoother, you had to be the king. Not a local authority, not even like a regional authority. The only person that traveled on a smooth, wide, clean, good road was the king. But here's the thing about the king. The king couldn't just say, hey, I want to go to this town tomorrow. Let's go. I mean, he could, but he didn't. And why, why not? Well, because the road to that town was thin and beat up, wasn't treated good. There might have been big uh, things in the way, like roadblocks that you couldn't get around, like the path to that town. We, we don't know that town that well. And the entourage that would come with the king made it really hard to travel. You got to think of the weapons, the soldiers, the equipment, all of this stuff that would travel with the king that couldn't get onto some of these roads. And so in an effort to be able to go to these towns and villages, a king would send out two things, his heralds and his engineers. And they would go to the town and they would show up in the town and they would say, hey, guess what? Do you even have a hint at the honor that's coming to your town? The king is coming. The king is going to come to your town. He's going to travel from the palace and he's on his way. He's going to travel through your town. And if you want the king to come to your town, we got to make some changes around here. And the engineers would come in and they'd survey the roads. And they'd say, hey, the roads need to be wider and smoother. We need to clean up these roads. And the town would come. And those who were interested in having the king come, who wanted to see the king, they would go and they would clean out all of these roads. And it was not easy work. You see, in those days, you would travel on these thin dirt roads. And oftentimes, there'd be a boulder. It was very common for like a giant boulder to be in the road. Well, the common people aren't going to come and shoulder a boulder. Like, like hey, get it out of the way. It doesn't work. So you just go around it. They'd have these gullies and ravines on the sides of the road that made it hard to expand the road, right? And sometimes you'd have these big, giant holes in the road that were caused by different things. And so you couldn't fill them in, so you would just kind of go down in it and keep going or go around it. Pull your stuff through it because you couldn't stay on the road. But when the king came, John says, no, this is not just anybody traveling on this road. The king is coming. And it's not just any king. So they would come and they would say, we need to move that boulder, fill in those ravines, widen that road, smooth it out, and make straight a path for the king to come. And John, the apostle, is saying, this is the purpose of my life. I am here to come in and prepare a path for the king. The king is coming. The king is coming into the world. The Messiah is here. And my goal, he's like, not just any king. This isn't just someone who's going to make you feel good. This is the king of kings. He's coming. And my objective in life is to make straight a path for the king so that when he shows up, he can come in and do what only the king can do. In other words, he's saying, my life is not my own. It's not about me. I'm going to do everything I can to scream from the rooftops. Here comes the king, and I'm going to do everything I can to get down there and engineer a path for the king to show up and do what only he can do. And then I'm going to get out of the way and let the king do what he can do because I'm not the light. I'm just here to testify about the light. What a challenge. I mean, how can you read that? How can you come to understand that and not think, man, that's what we're called to do as well? Man, if I'm, a, if I'm someone who's experienced this light, this life that comes with Jesus, my objective in life is to empty everything I have in order to make that path straight for someone else to experience that king coming. 
And so Christians live with gospel-centered hospitality. We invite people into our homes to sit around our tables, to become a compassionate listening ear as their lives are falling apart, to help them see a clear path so that the Lord can come. And we go out of our way and we listen to our coworkers whose lives are falling apart and we say, I think there's a way through this. And we step up with boldness and we share the gospel when we're given the opportunity, not because we want to pat on the back or to feel like we're some sort of evangelical superhero, but because we are not the light. We're just here to testify to the light, just to help people move boulders, fill in ravines, make the path straight so that the king can come and do what only the king can do. We don't do it. This church doesn't do it. He does it. We are in the business of making the path straight for the king to come. But it's even more than that. John doesn't say, I just serve people and care for people and give them a meal when they need a meal and meet their physical needs. All those things are fine, but John's objective was not to be a contributing member to society and build good communities. That's not what he was after. He says, I testified to the light. And John the apostle says, that light was coming into the world and the world didn't know it. And when the world did see him, the world didn't want him. When you study John's writings and you, you see the way that he says the world, it's, it appears hundreds of times. There are times, a few times, where it's speaking of the physical world around us. But almost every other time, hundreds of times in his writings, he'll speak of the world as a negative place, a place that rejects the Lord. Which means shining a light into the darkness is not easy when the darkness doesn't want the light. So we go ahead and we say with flashlights, hey, I'm, I've, I'm in the light and I'm telling you, I can help you get out of this darkness. I'm not the light, but I know the light. He loves this analogy of light and darkness for that very reason. But here's the thing I've learned about darkness. Maybe you've learned it too. It's nearly impossible to live selfless in the dark. Think about it. If you go home tonight you wake up in the morning and you go to and the, you have blackout curtains. The sun isn't coming up yet. The lights are all out and the power's out in your house. And you get up. You don't start thinking, all right, how do I help everybody move around? That's not your first thought. When you're in the darkness, you're like, all right, don't step on this. Where did I leave that? Where was that other thing? I don't want to trip over that. I don't want to knock this thing over. The kids played with Legos last night. Like, oh, no. Like, you start thinking, like, okay, how do I? How do me, 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 I, I, I got to navigate? And then when it's all settled, maybe you start to help somebody else through the dark. But the best solution you can find is the light to help everybody else in the dark. See, it's, it's nearly impossible to meet the needs and consider the needs of other people that are around you when you're in the darkness. That's what darkness is. It's sin. It's self-centeredness. And it's what happens to us, man. We slip back in and out of it in this life because sin still has power around us, even if it's not condemning us. And so there are times when I'm just so focused on myself and it's like you're living in the darkness and you need to be reminded, no, you know the light and the light is what you're here to testify to. The light is the one that can help everybody else. You're not the light, but you know the light. So how do we practically keep ourselves from like falling into the darkness over and over again? I think there's a profound way. There's so many ways and so many ways to answer that question. But there's this really profound way to prevent you from continuing to fall into the darkness. And it's this. You preoccupy yourself with God and the life that he's called you to live. Preoccupy yourself with God. You say they said the boredom, the whole point of boredom and selfishness was that we're preoccupied with ourselves. Solution, preoccupy yourself with God. 
Let me tell you how this came about for me. A few weeks ago, I was reading in my devotional life. I was reading through scriptures, and uh, I, uh, this was late December, and I'm reading in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 3. I'd read it and, and looked at this passage hundreds of times in my life. And then all of a sudden, I'm reading in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, and, and something hit me. It was like, wow. It was a part of this diamond, this painting that I hadn't noticed before. You see, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God creates the world. And the pinnacle of that creation is Adam and Eve. It's his children, and he has this perfect relationship with them. He walks with them, and he spends time with them, and he cares for them, and he listens to them, and he talks to them. They have perfect intimacy with God, and then all of that changes. But God says before the change, he says, Hey, you can keep this relationship going. Just don't eat from that tree. That tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Don't, don't eat from that and we're going to be good. And so they don't. And they go about like taking care of the garden and taking care of creation. Everything's good. Then the serpent shows up. And he says, hey, did God say don't eat that? And the tempter tells him like, no, that's not true. You, you can eat that. And look at Genesis 3 verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And it hit me. The tree and the fruit were always there. They were always there. It's, Satan didn't bring the tree with him. He didn't say, hey, I brought this new tree. Don't, God said, don't eat of it. I'm saying eat it. What do you think? Like, it wasn't weird like that. The tree and the fruit were always there, always able to be a temptation. And yet verse six tells us when she saw that it was all these things, that's when she gave in. Well, what prevented her before that from seeing how good it was? Maybe it's because Adam and Eve were so completely preoccupied by their relationship with God. So completely consumed by the intimacy they shared with him, that the temptation, not that it wasn't there, but that it had lost its power. It wasn't pulling them because they were so focused on God and living the life and tending to the garden the way that God had called them to tend to the garden. Which makes a whole lot of sense out of the writer of Hebrews when he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Why? Because when you're focused on him and preoccupied with him, you're not so much consumed with yourself, what you want and your desires. See, we see in the life of John the Baptist we see what John's trying to do and the beauty in which he wrote about John the Baptist in telling us that the key to living a fulfilled life is to make life less about you and to preoccupy yourself with the life that God has called you to by fixing your eyes on him. One author said it this way, Ironically, often the thing that keeps me from experiencing joy is my preoccupation with myself. The very selfishness that keeps me from pouring myself out for the joy of others also keeps me from noticing and delighting in the myriad of small gifts that God offers me every day. Look, I'm not telling you to not take care of yourself. Please don't hear that. But I am saying that maybe you need to make everything less about yourself. Take care of yourself, but pay attention to a culture that tells you to obsess with yourself, to focus on yourself. Because maybe the key is making life a little bit less about yourself to pour out your life as a witness to the light and the life that comes with it. John Orberg said it this way, Heaven, it's not a pleasure factory that an angry God chooses to shut some people out of because they don't pass a theology test. It's a community of servanthood that can only be enjoyed by a certain kind of character. Character given to us by the shaping of the Holy Spirit 
who changes us into being less focused on us and more focused on the needs of the people around us. Is that not our goal? It's to get to heaven and the gates of heaven completely exhausted, bringing as many people with us as we possibly can, serving everyone around us. And when we get there to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? That your life, your life is an offering to your king to just say thank you. Now I want to testify to the light that you have shined into the darkness of my soul in hopes that others will experience that too. If you really believe that, then man, there's nothing better to do than get to work making a straight path for the coming of the king. Let's pray. God, thank you. I just thank you so much for the people in my life that sacrificed so much to remove boulders and fill in ravines, to remove mountains and fill valleys so that I could see clearly who you are. God, thank you for those who have testified to the light. And God, we live in a culture that tells us not to, just to testify to ourselves and our accomplishments and our goals and our dreams. Would you help us be a people that live different, that see that the key to living a fulfilled life is to empty ourselves for your glory because of what you did in emptying yourself to save us. Help us live in a beautiful response to the grace that we've received so freely and offer it to other people, testifying to the light, pointing people to you, preparing a path for people to come to know you as their king. Help us, Father, in many ways, get to heaven exhausted because we spend our lives pouring it out for your glory. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,